reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab had told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a juniper tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. How many of you know that God's plans are for you today? Man, Some, sometimes in life it doesn't always feel like it. Sometimes in life it feels like things are crashing all around you. But in the midst of struggle, there's always triumph. 
because God is for you. I think you need to hear that again. God is for you. He didn't go through what he went through on the cross to leave you. He didn't go through what he went through on Calvary so you could feel down and out and nobody is going to help. Listen, he's already helped and he's actually said on the cross, Telestai. That means it's finished. Everything you need, it's already finished. Yeah, come on. It's already finished. So you can say, thy will be done. <laughs> thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Hmm. Text 4 of chapter 19 and 1 Kings grabs my attention. It says, Elijah, he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. How many of you have been there before? He said, I have had enough. <laughs> Good God Almighty, I had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Father God, that in times when we feel like we've had enough, we have someone to tell we've had enough too. You are there, God, with us in the midst of every trial, of every challenge, every struggle, and you are with us to let us know that when we've had enough, you're there making sure we have enough. Lord, we thank you. Open up every heart, open up every mind, open up every ear that they might hear what you have to say today. Holy Spirit, we give you place and full authority. Use me however you choose. In Jesus' name, everybody in agreement with that prayer said amen. 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 Thank you, praise team. Hallelujah. In 1965, two years after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his infamous I Have a Dream speech, he revisited the message and his church in Atlanta, Georgia, and he said these words. He said, I must confess to you this morning that since that sweltering August afternoon in 1963, my dream has often turned into a nightmare. I've seen it shattered. He went on to talk about the injustices of the Negro community uh, and the poverty he witnessed with both Negroes and his white brothers due to lack of jobs. And while attempting to fulfill the dream, Dr. King had moments of concern, moments of despair. But despite it, he said these final words in his sermon. Yes, the dream has been shattered, and I've had my night marsh experience. But I tell you this morning, once more, that I haven't lost the faith. How many of you haven't lost the faith today? I still have a dream that one day all of God's children will have food and clothing and material well-being for their bodies and culture and education for their minds and freedom in their spirits. Today I want to talk to you uh, about somebody who have had a night marsh experience. Beloved, in their life sometimes, uh, while attempting to do good, you might be rejected, 
you might be pushed aside. You might even be abused. You might feel like you've had enough and are willing to abandon whatever it is that you are moving forward altogether. However, when you have a kingdom responsibility, as Paul says, you may be persecuted but not ashamed, crushed down but not destroyed. And in those moments when you have had enough, the Lord can remind us that we are not alone and in his kingdom we have enough to go on. To do that, we're going to look at the story of Elijah. His story is found in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, and the book of Kings is actually a collection. It's, it's not actually about Elijah and the other prophets. It's actually about a collection of the kings that actually ruled and reigned Israel after they were delivered from Egypt and prior to going into the exile. Elijah happens to be one of the most famous prophets in the Bible. Some interesting facts about Elijah is that his name actually means Jehovah is God. Jehovah means the Lord God of Israel. So every time you say Elijah's name, you are saying the Lord God of Israel is God. This tells us a little bit about Elijah's upbringing. It tells us uh, that his family in some way had some connection to God and they were actually the type of people who called on the name of the Lord. You have to be to name someone the Lord God of Israel is God. He's referenced in the New Testament by James uh, in, in James chapter 4 or 5, I believe, where he actually speaks about effective and effectual fervent prayer. He actually says that Elijah was a man like all of us. He was human like all of us, yet he prayed for three years that it would not rain, and it actually didn't rain. I actually asked somebody today, this morning, to pray that it wouldn't rain, right? So uh, we don't need three years. We just need about three hours. He was used by God to actually bring someone back from the dead. Now, that's not a lot of people in the Bible that have that type of resume. A lot of people in life, period, right, that has that type of resume. You can count them on half a hand. It's not that many. He was one of two people actually in the Bible who actually the Bible records to never have died. Now, on the Friday quick, I asked, and if, I asked some of you, I said, hey, if, if you can tell me who the other person is who actually didn't die in the Bible, that I would take you out for lunch. Now, now James Sink is an overachiever. Where you at, James? He, he actually texted me like 10 minutes after it was released. <laughs> and, and, and he gave me the answer. So he, so, he, so he beat you to the punch. He was zealous for the Lord like Elijah was. <laughs> and he actually told me who that person is. Does anybody else know who that person was? Anybody want to shout it out? Anybody other than John Crooks? Because I know you know. Was that Enoch? I heard it over there. Yeah, yeah. So Enoch, right. Enoch, the Bible says that he walked with God and he was no more. Now, Elijah is different. It's similar. He was walking with God, but all of a sudden, a chariot of fire came out of heaven. He caught a holy Uber that took him up into the sky. That's, why, that's how I want to go, y'all. Listen, I don't, I don't want to go in no accident or nothing like that. I want to call a holy Uber, put my hand out, holy hack or something that take me right on up out of here. Amen. He, he actually appeared with Jesus and Moses at the transfiguration. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing that Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain. And who shows up? 
but Elijah and Moses. And my favorite was the showdown with the prophets of Baal found in 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the message. But Elijah had an amazing and phenomenal life and resume. Yet despite it all, Elijah experienced weary nights of the soul and to the point where he was asking God to take his life. He, he got so low in his walk with God that he started to, 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 to lose value and worth in himself, and he asked God to take his life. Primarily because, like his forefathers, he struggled to believe in the midst of challenge that God would protect him. Listen, I'm encouraged by that. If, if, if the resume of somebody in the scriptures of Elijah can go through human challenges the same way I do and you do, that gives me a whole lot of hope that I ain't that bad. I ain't that bad, right? I, I, I ain't that far off from righteousness. If, if, if Elijah can be that way, my God. You see, Elijah was a prophet who, who had a very difficult task. He, God chose Elijah to be what can be considered as the bearer of bad news. Uh, he, he actually had a nickname. His nickname was the troublemaker. Every time he got a word from the Lord to go speak to a king, it was to tell them something that they actually didn't want to hear. You, you avoid those kind of people, don't you? Every time, every time you somebody show up, they tell you something you don't want to, nerve, you don't want to hear about, something that you don't want to deal with, you, you, you blocking their number, you're acting like you ain't got their texts, you're not responding to emails. Elijah, they thought, was a troublemaker. You see, but the interesting thing about Elijah is that the bad news that he brought was actually the good news of the kingdom. The bad news that he brought was the good news of the kingdom. Now, whenever we hear good news, we ultimately will think of Jesus on the cross, right? We think that's the gospel. That good news, evangelion, is the word, the same word in the New Testament that means gospel. So we think of the gospel. We think of the cross. You see, but the gospel is far more than Jesus' death on the cross. When Jesus came, he preached the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And see, Jesus' message was about the establishment of God's kingdom, his comprehensive rule over all creation, and his life, death, and burial was his enthronement to that kingdom. Elijah preached that God was the comprehensive ruler over all creation. That is the message of the kingdom. So then the gospel is announcing the establishment and enthronement of Yahweh as king over his creation. And it looks like his comprehensive rule in your life. Within this gospel message is this concept, this idea of, of, of what is called, God coins, the image of God. We, we come in contact with the kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world. This kingdom of God idea is inherently solely a biblical concept. We are God's image bearers. We embody his rule in our lives and in this world. And this reality is one of the most provocative concepts in Scripture. 
I don't think we realize that when we say we are created in his image. When you say God is my father, sometimes I don't think we really realize what that means. When we say God is my father, we are saying we are of his same essence, that we are like him. <laughs> we cut from the same cloth is what you're trying to say. And, and this was something that was different than during the times of Elijah. When all people bear the image of God, it places every human on an equal scale of worth and value. And it means that all humans have the same access to the king who reigns over the kingdom, emulating and eliminating class, race, or gender, or anything else like that. When you say that others are image bearers, you are creating equality. And that's the type of kingdom that Elijah was preaching. See, during Elijah's time period, the contemporary nations of Assyria, Babylonians, the Egyptians, they also used the phrase image of God, but they only used it to reference the pharaohs or the kings or the, the, the kingly class. This allowed them to reduce others to slavery. It allowed them uh, to use these nations to exploit communities that were large in number, limited in power. It allowed them uh, to not value those who had performed the majority of the labor in that community, the labor that was actually very, very skilled labor. It allowed them to reduce them and not be compensated nor treated with the respect and value they deserve. They deserve for building the economic system and building the infrastructure. Something else reminds me of that in history. See, kings viewed themselves as deities, right? Therefore, the king was the only one who, who, who was considered the image of God, placing those who were not the image of God subject to the king. Elijah's message to serve and worship the one true God was in stark opposition to this type of conversation. See, God never wanted his people uh, to, to have human kings. He, he never intended the humans to lord over one another, not in a hierarchical sense. In his kingdom, the lords are the ones who serve. It's interesting that the word lord in the Bible is also the word Baal. Uh, is also that same word. Baal can also be translated as husband. Oof. <laughs> which is why in Ephesians chapter 4 or 5, Paul attacking this type of society where others were dominated over others, he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for. He, he tells them who would be considered lords in a society to flip the script and serve. Ladies, can I help your husband for just a minute? Is it okay? Can I just take a, a, a detour from the message? It's not actually in my, my notes. I just want to take a detour real quick. Uh, guys, let me tell you something. Your wife has no problem submitting to foot rubs three times a week at minimum. She, she, she got no problem submitting to you lavishing her with words of praise and adulation and, and gifts and, and taking her out to let her know that she's valuable and worthy. She has no problem submitting to your support of her dreams and her aspirations as she seeks to accomplish things that God has put on her heart. 
Any ladies got any problems submitting to that kind of, that submitting to that? You got to you want to submit to love and appreciation and value and equality and all that you do? No, nobody got no problem submitting to that. This is what Elijah is actually confronting. He's confronting this type of mentality, this type of society that he comes after. And this is why Elijah was so rejected. It's why he was such a troublemaker. See, Elijah comes on the scene to confront the type of assault of inequality and sinfulness in the kingdom, and he pronounces a three-year drought. This is a direct slap in the face to the prophets of Baal and Asherah. See, Baal is more of a collection of gods, more than just one god. Uh, it's a term to define gods or collection of gods. And whenever you are a Baal worshiper, essentially what it's trying to say is that you, you, you are a syncretistic, say that three times, syncretistic in your worship. Syncretistic. It simply means syncretism or syn being syncretistic is when you take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that over there, and you try to blend it in to one thing. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were taking the faith of one God, the faith of that God, the faith of this God, and trying to blend it in to merge it with the, the, the one who was supposed to be the one true God. And, and Baal essentially was a, was a God that was responsible for, for, for agriculture. He was an agricultural God. And he was about building produce and things of that nature. Asherah, on the other hand, Asherah was a God about production as well, but it was involved with these lewd sexual practices and, and mutilation of the body and all of these weird things. So calling a three-year drought when these types of, of gods are in power is a direct slap in the face to their so-called productivity and produce in the world. And Elijah was in direct contact and confrontation with King Ahab, who was right smack dab in the middle. Ahab, son of Omri, he says this in 1 Kings chapter 16, 30-33. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and you can talk to me after service about that, because that's a whole other story, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse. You hear that language? He did more to arouse the God, the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings in Israel before him. Ahab had rejected the God of his fathers, and both God and Elijah had had enough. It had been building up since Genesis chapter 1 to 3 with God having enough. He tried to establish and, and establish his kingdom here on the earth with Adam and Eve, but they committed treason and rejected the kingdom entirely. They tried to build their own kingdom. And from there, we begin to see the difference between those who call on the name of the Lord and those who follow their own way. It happened with Moses. Moses delivering the children of Israel from over 430 years of slavery. They get out into the wilderness. God, Moses comes down from Mount Horeb, bringing the commandments, the kingdom priorities of God. And God tells him the commandments, 
And the people of Israel get afraid. They tell Moses, look, man, it's, it's fire and lightning over there. It's, it's smoke and rumbling over by that mountain. How about this? You go talk to him. We'll talk to you. We're not going over there. And it wasn't better when they get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they go to Samuel the prophet and demand that, they, that Samuel give them a king like the kings of the other nations around, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and Babylonians, all the people who don't express the image of God in the same way that God does, they demand they give him a prophet or, or king. And God tells Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. We reject God in all types of ways. When we don't value others as equal, we don't love our neighbor as ourself, we won't love our enemies and forgive them. We reject God in all types of ways. And, and for three years, Elijah has been on the run from Ahab, Jezebel, and finally gets the word to end a three-year drought and a, so, a beatdown of the so-called prophets and, and, and gods of Asherah and Baal. He goes to confront Ahab because God has had enough, and he tells him, to summon all of the 400 prophets of Asherah, the 450 prophets of Baal, to meet him for a holy showdown. It was a WWE event for any of my wrestling fans. A worldwide worship extravaganza. He told him to come on down to the mountain. And see, the proof Elijah says that the true God will respond by fire. He will answer by setting a true sacrifice on fire. See, the people had fallen into this syncretistic lifestyle, and they had no longer were truly worshiping Yahweh because, see, truth be told, they really didn't even know Yahweh. They didn't know him through his word. They didn't know him in worship. And see, getting to know someone requires you to sacrifice sometimes. How many of you know that? How many of you know getting to know somebody requires sacrifice? It's a sacrifice sometimes of being open and vulnerable uh, to get to know someone. Sometimes it's laying down your agenda and being able to list, be a listening ear to the challenges that they face. This is why God connects building a relationship to him to worship. Elijah calls for a worship showdown and declares that the God who answers by fire is the true God. So both sides have their bases of offerings, both have bulls, both have wood, both have an altar, but only Elijah provides a sacrifice. What, what do I mean? What do I mean? You see, the prophets of Baal have an empty religion in worship. They have practices and rituals that do not draw them to closer to God because they're not worshiping the one true God. So they set up an altar, a so-called sacrifice. They attempt to perform ritual dances that were designed to bring rain down from heaven. And they start to cut themselves and mutilate their bodies for hours and hours and hours this goes on. See, but Elijah sets up 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of God's covenantal agreement to be king over his people. And Elijah gives what the people don't have a whole lot of. 12 barrels of water. He says it right there in 1 Kings 18. Go bring me four barrels of water. Now go bring me four more barrels of water. Then go more bring me four more barrels of water. If they ain't want to kill Elijah before, they, they want to kill him now. 
you wasting all my water pouring this on this on the ground on the dirt making a muddy sacrifice taking all my water in a three-year drought <laughs> Elijah prays a prayer and Yahweh answers by fire burning up the bowl the wood the stones and yes even the water and as a result the people dragged the prophets down to the Kidron Valley and they murdered them the principle that I gleaned from this story in 1 Kings chapter 18 uh, that has been kind of a model for my life is this, is that to know God, you need to worship him. But you cannot worship God without a sacrifice. And watch this. A sacrifice isn't a sacrifice until it costs you something. Mm. Some of us giving sacrifices don't cost us nothing. Some of us giving God clothes that we ran through that we don't want no more. We, we treating God like the goodwill. We dropping off the stuff that we don't need, stuff that we don't want, and saying, God bless my sacrifice. But it's something that we really don't want at all. And it can't be a sacrifice unless it's cost us something. And if we're not giving something that cost us something, we're not truly getting to know God because we're not truly worshiping. Paul said it this way uh, in Romans chapter 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true and proper worship. Elijah's life, y'all, is amazing. Yet despite his faithfulness and obedience, Jezebel, who is Ahab's wicked wife, makes a declaration that in 24 hours, your life will be gone. He still lives in a world where people who reject God are attempting to kill him. And after three years of being on the run, moving from city to city, place to place, town to town, house to house, not knowing whether the things he did actually meant anything, whether and whether he was going to get food the next day, Elijah has had enough. Anybody ever been there with God? <laughs> were you like, you know what, God? I've been holding out, trying to be right. I've been trying to do the right thing. I've been wanting to get married. I'm trying to be good, and, 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 and I'm doing all the right stuff. And, but, but God, it seemed like every time I turn around, there's nobody there that has my same values, that sees things the way you see them. I'm not meeting anybody. God, I had enough. I'm ready to just, just turn it all over. Maybe you said, I've been running this business for 10 years, and I've been waiting for this business to take off. And over time and time and time again, it seemed like I'm always pulling myself out of one challenge to the next. God, I have had enough. Maybe you're in a relationship, a marriage, and you're saying, it's been years, God, where we've been unhappy. There's no joy. There's no passion. There's no love. There's nothing there. And really, God, you know what? I have had enough. Elijah's right there. Elijah has had enough. And this is why in 1 Kings chapter 19, 10, he says it. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, tore down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they're looking for me now to take my life. So I want to really just, as I finish this message, give you three things to do or to remember when you are in a night marsh moment. Pastor Corey often says that either we are going into trouble, in trouble, or on our way out of trouble. 
And if you are in that type of situation, I just want to tell you three things that God tells Elijah to do when he is in and when you are in a night marsh experience. The first one is found in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 5 through 7. God tells Elijah through the angel of the Lord to get a good night rest and a good meal. You're like, okay, there's no profound spiritual nugget there. <laughs> I'm not blown away by that encouragement. Not blown away by that advice. You see, but I'm convinced, Grace City, that we are overworked, underfed, undernourished, and sleep-deprived in most of our lives. We work from project to project, task to task, event to event, birthday to birthday, uh, uh, student meeting to student meeting, thing to thing, and really, at the end of the day, we are exhausted. Exhausted. Because we're doing so much to work for the Lord or to work to get here, striving towards the thing that we think will satisfy us. We say things like, when I get there, or, or, or when I get this, or, or when this is done, assuming that when we actually get it, it'll some way bring some sense of fulfillment in our lives. When we get there to get it, we realize that it ain't as great as we wanted it. And then we exhaust it all over again. God tells Elijah to get a good meal, man. <laughs> and look, bro, you need a nap, to be honest with you. <laughs> you got young kids, you know what I'm talking about. They're just cutting up, acting a fool, crying. Just go to bed, man. Go to sleep. You need a nap. <laughs> listen, listen, some of us need a nap. I know after preaching, I need a nap. I don't want to lay down and get something to eat. He tells Elijah to go to bed and get a good night's rest. Why? Because when you do that, it will strengthen you for the journey. It will strengthen you for the journey. We oftentimes look to the end and think the end is what we want, but the joy is on the way. The final event is but a moment. You need to enjoy your way to the moment so that when you can look back over your life, you're excited about being at the moment. You need strength for the journey, beloved. The second thing he tells Elijah to do is to get alone with God. The angel of the Lord sends him to Mount Horeb, and Elijah, no doubt, would have remembered this mountain as the same mountain that Moses saw God at the burning bush at. The same mountain that God passed before Moses with thunder and lightning and fire and smoke as he gave him the commandments. You see, but this is really not about miraculous things. The text tells us that, that there was fire, but God wasn't in it. There was earthquakes, but God wasn't in it. There was a mighty rushing wind, but God wasn't in it. It wasn't until there was a soft whisper. And you need to get along with God because you need the noise that's in your head to get silent enough so you can hear a whisper. There's way too much noise in your head. There's way too much noise in Elijah's head. God comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here, man? Similar to what he did with Adam in the garden, he asked Adam, Adam, where are you? 
It's not that he didn't know where Adam was. It was really about, Adam, where are you not? It's not walking with me in the cool of the day. What you doing here, Elijah? You, and to imply, you should be somewhere else. What are you doing here, Elijah? And all Elijah can say is, man, I'm the only one left. They killed your prophets. They tore down your altars. They did all these things, and now they're trying to kill me too. Two times God has to ask Elijah why he's here. And Elijah gives the same response. Why? Because the noise in his head is too loud to understand the whisper. It's the difference between religion versus, response, versus relationship. Here in a minute, we're going to get ready to take communion. And a communion is a, a, a practice, a ritualistic religious practice and scenes that you do on a consistent basis. We do it the same way. Every first Sunday of the month, we take communion. And see, there's a tendency, if you do not examine yourself, to treat the body and blood of the Lord as religion rather than relationship. When you don't connect that to your life and what he's done to deliver you, what the body and the blood has meant to you, it turns for you into religion versus relationship. And this is where Elijah is. He just got finished calling fire down from heaven to burn a sacrifice, but it wasn't bringing him closer to God. All it did is made him think about how he was the only one left, which actually wasn't even true. You need to get alone with God. And here's the last thing. After you have rested, after you got yourself a nap because you need it, after you got yourself food because you know you're hungry, after you've got alone with God and you've allowed the noise in your head to get silent enough to hear a whisper, now, God tells him, to get back to your kingdom assignment. You notice that God doesn't say, oh, Elijah, I'm sorry that you, you, you feel this way. I'm sorry that, uh, that, that you feel like you're the only one. He don't respond to lies. God responds to the truth. And the truth is, Elijah, you ain't got no business here in the first place. You need to get back to your kingdom assignment. Now, I'm going to tell you to get back to your kingdom assignment, Elijah, but I'll help you actually to correct your thinking about where you are. You're going to go and anoint Haziel as king. You're going to go and anoint Jehu as king over Israel. And then guess what you're going to do? You're going to go and find the person you need to succeed you because right now you're trying to carry this weight alone and you shouldn't. You need to go and find a person and anoint them that you can raise somebody up to share the load with you, to partner with you in this progress. And here's the thing, beloved, that I want you to understand about anointing Haziel as king and Jehu as king. Elijah never was around to see it happen. Elisha was a part responsible of anointing Haziel as king. And Elisha's associate was responsible for anointing Jehu as king. What am I trying to say, beloved? I'm trying to say that the kingdom assignment that God has for you may not be fulfilled by you. So instead of carrying all the weight of getting to the finish line, how about you just take the next step? How about you just move one foot forward in front of the other? 
rather than trying to see yourself to the end. And God may not have that for you. In Hebrews chapter 11, the people of old times of the faith were notarized because they actually never received the promise that they were believing for. But they said because of their belief, we can walk on in. Come on, somebody. You need to get back to your kingdom assignment when you feel like you are all alone. Because your kingdom assignment is not about you. It's about somebody else, and you need others around you to help you get to the finish line. If the praise team would come on and come. It's, it's interesting here that Elijah feels this way. See, one of the things that Elijah's life teaches us is that sometimes after your greatest success becomes your greatest failure. I need you to be on guard, beloved. That when you are most on the top of the mountain, be careful when you think you stand lest you fall. Elijah teaches us that our greatest tragedy can sometimes come after our greatest blessing. This is what happened with Elijah. This is what happened actually with Dr. King. Dr. King felt this way after his I Have a Dream speech. Uh, this is what Jesus experienced after the Holy Spirit descended on him prior to being tempted in the wilderness. And that's what he felt when he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane after he had prayed in John chapter 17 telling God, I have completed the work. He completed the work. He stayed on his assignment, but despite staying on his assignment, he got into the garden and wanted to give it all up. But he said, nevertheless, because God, this ain't just about me. I got a kingdom to establish. It's not my will, God. It's yours be done. Let your will be done in my life, not my will. I don't want this, God. I don't want this cup. I want it to pass from me. But you know what? If it means that you, Sean, and that you, John, and, and you, James, and you, Brittany, and you, Kristen, will come into fellowship with me, I'm willing to take it. I'm willing to bear it. I'm willing to endure it. And all you got to do is keep looking up. <laughs> My God, today. You just got to keep looking up. Just keep looking up. Because when you look up to the hill, you see the reason you need to keep going. You see the example of what it means to sacrifice. You see the example of what it means to put your head down, believe what God is doing, and believe that your efforts are not in vain because you are not alone. As we sing this song, I want you to open your hearts to this reality of what it means to be a kingdom person. The kingdom is not about you. It's bigger than you. And you just need to take the step.